I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I, I didn't know a thing about what it, how I was supposed to pray or, you know, who, if I was supposed to do certain weird things like light candles or, you know, I don't know, sit Indian style or what I was supposed to do. And I remember when I, I, I was a guy in my church where I was, uh, just got saved, his church was like a, just a block down from where I lived. And I, I started going to this church and there was a, a guy who I looked up to, I forget his name now, but uh, he actually sat down and he said, you know, if you want to, let me teach you how to pray. And so, you know, I always, there's other guys in the church that I wanted to emulate uh, and pattern my prayer life after. And if you, sometimes you come across these, you know, these guys and they have these deep, you know, deep, very theological prayers. And you know, I, was, I, didn't know, I didn't have a clue what I was praying. You know, I just was talking to Jesus, man. And uh, whenever, I, I, when I read these passages, I'm thinking, man, what, is it, what does it sound like when Jesus prays, you know? Does he, does he pray, you know, like the, uh, the Shakespearean language, oh, Father, what light doth yonder break, you know, whether the Shakespeare or so, um, you know, but no, I, at John chapter 17, we get a, like a front row seat to how Jesus prays. I like that. I want, I want to hear this. I want, I want to know how Jesus prays to the Father. And before we get into it, uh, I want to read you just a quick, uh, I guess a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quote I want to share with you from a, a pretty popular, famous Irish theologian by the name of J.G. Bellet, and, his, and he wrote this in, his, in his, uh, one of his books, and he, I want to read it to you. He said, John chapter 17 is truly a sequel to John 13, and in each, in each action, in each of, the, of these chapters, Jesus is viewed as performing an action. In John chapter 13, you might remember, this is the chapter where Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. Well, in John chapter 17, Jesus is talking to the Father. So here's the quote. In the 13th chapter, he had, as it were, laid one hand on the defiled feet of his saints. Speaking of Jesus, John chapter 13. And, and, and he lay, in this passage, the other hand on the throne of the Father, forming thus a chain of marvelous workmanship, reaching from God to the sinner. And in the 13th chapter, his body was girt, and when he was ready for, to, to wash these disciples' feet, he was stooping down towards our feet. And here in John chapter 17, his eyes are lifted up, and he is looking in the face of his father. So, man, that's exciting. Now, I read that, and I'm thinking, man, how, only Jesus can do that. He can be in heaven, speaking directly face-to-face with the creator of the universe. And then he's, on the other passage, he's washing my feet. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you humble yourself like that? That's Jesus, all right? That's, that's what's so remarkable about Jesus. So we were getting ready to read this passage, and I, I kind of, you know, I want to kind of do the, have this, this silence go over the, uh, the church. It's kind of like leaning in to what Jesus is saying. I want us to lean in and listen carefully. Shh, Jesus is praying. So John chapter 17, let's begin reading in, uh, in verse 5, if you will. All right. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world began, or before the world was. That's emphasizing Jesus' deity. The point he's saying here is, Jesus didn't just, he wasn't just born, you know, someday, and then it was the beginning of Jesus. No, Jesus has always existed, is what he's saying. I've always been, I will forever be, I am God, all right? It's it's a pretty big statement there, and he's emphasizing that he's God. In verse 6, he says, and I have manifested your name unto unto these men, which you gave me out of the world. 
Thine were they, were they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept your word. He's speaking about the disciples. You know, Jesus is recognizing God gave them to Jesus just to basically teach them the word of God, and they've kept God's word. In verse 7, he's praying, continuing, he says, Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, or you could say are from thee. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came out from you, and they, and they have believed that you did send me. I'm, I'm taking the vows in the You can follow me, okay? All right, that is too Shakespearean here. Okay, drop down. Jesus did not pray with these and vows. I want to make sure you understand that. All right, verse 13. All right, the Bible continues, and Jesus continues prayer, and he says, Now... And now, now come I unto you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Well, that's big. He's saying, you, I'm praying that you can be fulfilled. You can experience the fullness of joy here. That's what he's praying. And he, verse 14, he says, and I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but rather that you should, sit, you should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am out of the world. Sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. Now let's, let's pray and ask God to help us understand really what Jesus is praying for, because I want to guide us through this. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to kind of dig into this passage of Scripture my, my ultimate prayer this, this evening is that you will help us to understand not only what you desire for us as your, as your followers, as, as your disciples, but you will help us to implement these things and help us to, to dream big dreams for you and, and about you. And I pray, God, you will help us as a church to, to, to crave the bigness and the impact that you plan for us to make here in this city and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I said, we're, this is a passage dealing directly with Jesus and his praying for the disciples. But before we get too far into it, I want to share just a real-life scenario with you. Anybody, um, does anybody like going uh, swimming? Anybody like to go swimming in here? Okay, that's good. This is, I like to think these thoughts when it's wintertime. I do. I have, have happy thoughts of swimming uh, when there's snow outside. Um, and I'm praying. And I first came here, I prayed for snow. Big mistake. Big mistake. Um, <laughs> Now I pray that there will be no snow. Lord, make it doth part. All right, so, and I am praying, and I can remember, I say these things because it reminds me of when I was a kid. I grew up 30 minutes away from the beach. Um, the beach I used to go to all the time was New Smyrna Beach, and uh, it was a great place. I remember my dad teaching me how to body surf. Does anybody know what that is? Body surfing? All right, that's good. You're red-blooded Americans. All right, so the idea of body surfing is you surf with your body. That's what it is. Got to have muscles to do that, though. Okay, no, I'm kidding. Um, you can be overweight. Anyway, uh, you just sink a little bit. No. Um, well, uh, so here's the thing. I, I guess one time I was body surfing, and uh, I was a kid, and I remember uh, I got caught in a riptide. I don't know if you know what that is. Um, basically, what happened was I was body surfing, and um, I went to, I got started, put, the riptide started pulling me further out into the ocean. 
And usually this is a very frightening thing, but I was a kid, I didn't have a clue what was going on, um, and I survived because I'm still here. Um, but I remember vividly the panic I started going through. Um, when it happened was I was pulled out, I was just having so much fun body surfing, and eventually I was pulled away by this riptide, and I started to swim to my, my hardest to get back to the shore. Now, if you know anything about riptides, they tell you do not swim back to the shore if you're caught in a riptide. Anybody know why? Because you're going to get exhausted. Um, and that's how people drown when you get caught in a riptide, because you swim, you're, you get so panicked, you start swimming back to the shore. Well, I remember, well, of course, I started doing this as a kid. I'm swimming back to the shore, and I started getting exhausted. And uh, my dad is screaming from the shoreline, well, how am I supposed to handle this? This is a very intense moment of my life. Can you tell? All right, I'm actually shaking as I'm describing. No, I'm kidding. All right, so my dad's screaming with his big belly. Mental picture is important here. Anyway, so... He's, uh, he's screaming for the shoreline, hey, son, swim parallel, swim parallel to the shore. And he's screaming, and he's doing these weird body motions. So I finally realized what he's telling me to do, and I start swimming parallel to the shoreline. And the reason why is uh, riptide's like a treadmill, all right? You run on a treadmill. The idea is you just got to get off the treadmill. You don't just keep running uh, to, to get off. You just have to either jump off or just jump on the side. Uh, and that's what he was trying to do is get out of the riptide, so swim parallel. And eventually, I got out of the drift, and I was able to swim diagonal to the shoreline and survive, and I look as good as ever. So um, that was the idea. Now, you say, why in the world? What's the point of you telling me this, this silly story? Well, the reason why I'm telling you is two things. One is because I wa- I am, I'm wanting to, you to realize that, that it, it, it gets, I guess, it is easy to get caught in a riptide of superficial Christianity, if, if there is such a thing. I don't know if it exists. Um, but and what happens is we get pulled further and further away from what the Bible calls a Christian or what the Bible calls a disciple, all right? And, that's, and we get pulled away from this, um, and, 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 and what happens is we start, we start having these, these wrong thoughts um, or misconceptions of what an actual follower of Christ lives like or does. Um, to kind of set the mood here, let me kind of ask you a question. Um, when you read the Bible... And you're looking at the disciples, the Christians of the, church, of the Bible. Are you reading the Bible? You ever notice they don't look a lot like Christians today? They don't live like Christians today. You ever, you ever notice that? Like, how, I, don't, I don't live that kind of a life. That doesn't look like me. I mean, how, how do I do that? Well, what I'm trying to point out to you is this. This is the problem that we are facing. It's called superficial Christianity. So the, this all started for me, really, um, not when I first got saved, but it was when I went to Bible college to, to really learn how to become a stronger Christian and influence people with Scripture. I began to learn um, very well how to become superficial about my walk with God. I began to, pref- I, I mean, I began to prefer to live in this Christian bubble, you know? And I, like, I like living in the Christian bubble, you know? It's comfortable. I don't have to worry about feeling accepted because <laughs> you have to accept me, all right? You know, I'm... I'm weird, and I, I look weird, I talk weird, but I'm your brother, and you can't be mean to me if you're going to be nice to God, all right? That's the way it works, all right? God and you have to be close. That means you have to be close to me, so you have no choice but to love me, all right? So the idea is that, that I guess, I preferred to live in this Christian bubble in the Bible college I was going to, and people were for, forced to accept me, and I never realized that, that all the while, I was drifting away from what the Bible called an actual disciple. So my life looked nothing like the lives of the believers in the Bible. I used to tell myself uh, all sorts of excuses of why this would be, and I'm sure you probably even thought of it maybe in your own heart or maybe things you, excuses you might have come up with. And I'll be honest, this, this really hit me recently when I began to, to go through a Christian books, a bookstore. And you start reading these book titles. 
radical Christianity or you know, passionate and committed followers of Christ. That was the slogan I came up with, I started living by. I thought, that, why am I using all these adjectives? This is weird. This doesn't make any sense. When the Bible simply uses a noun, it's called disciple. Disciple evidently was enough. That's all that needed to be used to describe a passionate, committed, radical follower of Jesus. But in our Western, comfortable Christian bubble, because we're so comfortable, we have to come up with extra, extra adjectives. Because typically, these are not Christians. We do not live like this because we're comfortable. So my question is, is this true for you? I mean, when you look at the Bible, do you, do you live like them? Because if not, maybe we should reevaluate. You know, what, what really is a disciple? I mean, are we really following Jesus like we should be? Are we doing what he told us to do? Those are the questions I want you to be asking yourself tonight as we kind of work our way through this passage. And uh, I'm going to say this. Another, another reason why I gave you that illustration is because uh, whenever, you're, whenever you're caught in a riptide, if you notice that you're drifting in, your super, in superficial Christianity like, like I am or like I was, this ought to scare you for, for, for the same reason it would scare you if you were caught in a riptide at the beach. It's a matter of life or death, namely the impact that you will make for the cause of Christ. You see, the way you react to the riptide will determine the vitality or ruin of your effectiveness for the kingdom of God. It's for this reason I want to examine Jesus' desire and his expectation of a disciple. I want to know how a disciple thinks this, this evening because I want to know what the Bible says a biblical disciple looks like. So, in his prayer, he begins to describe some pretty important things. And there's two things. There's two notes. If you're going to write down some things, I want to encourage you to write these two things down. The mind of a disciple. According to Jesus' prayer, this is what Jesus, his expectation is of a disciple. One, they work hard to live in the word. Simple. We know that. They work hard to live in the word. The second thing is they work hard to live in the world. All right, those are two things that we notice in Jesus' prayer. So let's get into it. What do I mean when I say work, work hard to live in the word? Well, in verse 8, I notice three um, verbs that he points out. Let's read it together. For I have given unto them, speaking of his disciples, I've given unto them the words which thou gave me. And they have, here's the first word, received them. They have known, surely, that's our second one. They have known and they have believed. All right, so there's three verbs that I want to break down for you. I also, I called it this for simple, you know, Joe Catronio, small pea brain reasons. I, I said, I came with this. It's called, I'm calling it the take, try, trust cycle. Yeah, that's easy to remember, isn't it? Hey, take, try, trust. Say that three times fast. Don't do it right now. But anyway, take, try, trust cycle. All right. So let's, let's first look at this word receive. Jesus says it in his prayer. What does he mean? The word received is lambano in the Greek. It means to take something. I mean, it's mine. You know, it's this ownership. It's, it's mine. It's mine to have. Jesus is saying in his prayer that a true mark of a disciple takes Jesus' words to themselves. Another way, another way of saying it is um, they, they take God's word to heart. Now, there is a, there's an emotional component to that, that Greek word. Have you ever heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you? You ever heard that before? You ever raise your hand? Yeah, that's the biggest lie, is it not? Whoever, whoever come up with that lie is, is wrong. They've hurt so many people with that lie. Because the truth is, it does hurt. How many of you guys have ever been hurt by something somebody said to you? 
Yeah, that's not fun. It hurts. You want to hurt them, don't you? Okay. All right. Well, that's a big lie. And if you've ever been hurt or you've been in an argument, it really bothers you, you know? Something that somebody said causes an emotion, doesn't it? And when you hear something, you take it to heart. It causes an emotional response. That's what the Greek word has in mind here. It causes an emotional response. When you take the word of God to heart, it causes emotional response. Now, look at Why does it bother you? Well, think about it. If, if, if somebody says something to you, it either is going to make you angry, it's going to make you happy, it's going to make you depressed, you know? I mean, we've all experienced this. That's, that's the, there's an emotional piece to that word lambano. And the disciples were mulling over and over again in their heads that Jesus is teaching. As a result, these truths began to stir up. Oh, boy. They start to stir up all sorts of emotions in their heart. Man, they, want, they wanted to. They, Jesus said, I can do what? He, he really means that I can actually do something like that and experience supernatural power for, for the kingdom of God? I can, I can see God use me to spread the gospel around the world? Are you serious? And, and what's happening is he, they're hearing all these truths and they're beginning to take it to heart. And it's stirring up this emotion in them. That's what happens when you take the word of God to heart. It's going to stir up some emotions in you. Now, I say that because it, what happens is this leads to the second thing he mentioned. So he says, um, they, they received your words. They take your words to heart. And then what happens, it stirs up this emotion to where they want to try it, which is that word no. In, in the Greek, it's gnosko. It, pers- it means to personally try or experience something. <laughs> All right. To know something based on experience. So Jesus is very specific about what they wanted to try, or I should say experience. In fact, if you look at this, this word carefully, it's in the past tense. You notice it says, and they have known. That's past tense. Jesus said that they had already experienced his power and control over all things. Remember when they were in the boat and Jesus said to the sea, peace, be still. Man, how cool would it have been to be on that boat? Wouldn't that be awesome to see that? And all of a sudden this storm goes, and, or when the part where they were, the Bible says, at the very next verse, it says, and instantly they were on the sea. I mean, no, I'm sorry. Instantly they were on the shore. It's like they were in the middle of the ocean. Peace be still. Boom. They're on the, they're on the shoreline. How's that happen? Jesus is the bomb. That's all that has. That's what happened. He's incredible. He can do anything he wants. All right. So I say that. Now I'm going to be a little honest with you. Honest. I'll be a lot honest with you. I, like I said, I have a tendency to take things seriously. I'm a literalist. I believe the Bible seriously. And uh, I try some weird stuff. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and you just be honest with me, okay? And I, I'm honest, all right? I want you to be honest. You know the passage of Scripture where it talks about what Jesus said to his disciples? Hey, with just a little bit of faith, you can move mountains. You know that passage? When I, when I, when I was a brand new believer, I mean, just don't laugh at me because this is serious. And I, I was in my bedroom, and uh, there was a pencil on my dresser. <laughs> and I, I was sitting there, and I, was, and I said, Lord, you know, it started stirring up my heart. Because I, I was taken to heart what Jesus was saying. And he said, you can move mountains. So I'm getting excited here in my bedroom. And I'm like, okay, all right. Mm. You know, I'm, mm. and that is happening. You know, the pencil's not moving. And I'm thinking, man, Jesus. What do you mean? How come my pencil's not moving? Anyway, how, how many of you have ever done that? Ever actually done that before with that particular verse? Ever, come on. No, all right. Thank you, people, for your honesty, all three of you. I appreciate that. No, I, it, it, the truth is that we, I just want to challenge you. Hey, when you, when you read the Bible and it says stuff like this, 
You should want to try some of this stuff. I mean, Jesus didn't just talking about it. He meant what he said. Now, I'll do a little bit more expounding on what he meant in that passage, maybe another time. Um, but it was just, my point is, I really want to experience the, the word of God. I, that's what the disciples did. They didn't just listen. They didn't just read their Bibles. <laughs> they took it to heart, and they wanted to try it out. They wanted to experience it. Gnosko, that's the word. All right, so disciples were willing to take to heart the pro- This is a cool phrase. Listen to this. This should go... This should go in a book if I ever write it, which I won't write a book. Anyway, take it out. This is cool. This is a phrase that just God wrote for me. All right. The disciples were willing to take to heart the promises of Christ, which caused them to try the power of Christ, which ultimately led them to trust in the person of Christ. Chicka bow wow, that's awesome, isn't it? That's awesome. It's all Bible. It's all Bible. It's, it's that take, try, trust. You say, where are you getting trust from? I got the take to heart thing. I know that was in there. To receive, you know, the word of God and try, you know, try to stir up my heart to try out some of these principles. Well, the word believe, pistuo, that word pistuo means to trust. It means to place your absolute confidence on. Interestingly enough, that's the same word for faith that we have in the Bible. Or it's a close relative of the word faith. Think of it this way. The more you take in the more you're going to try the more you understand the word of god the more you live in the word of god the more you're going to want to try it and the more you want to try it the more you're going to trust because you're going to experience supernatural things in your life when you're trying the word of god that's called living in the bible you know i i'm going to use the lion king song all right it's the circle of life. All right, check it out. All right, that's good. I had the little, you know, what do you call it? Bravado, whatever you say. It. Okay. It's, it. Bear with me. I've got kids, all right? All right, so it's the circle of Christianity, you know? Take, try, trust. That's what it is. So see what happens when, you, when we start to read and live in the word of God, our faith grows. This is why I said, and I pointed out, that Jesus mentioned in his prayer that we are to live in the word of God. Live in it. The second thing I want to point out to you in his prayer, this is really seen in verse 13. So he's praying, he says, this is what I want for the disciples. I want them to take my words. I want them to try my words. And I want them to begin to trust in my bigness. All right? Then he says this. He prays in verse 13. Uh, actually, let's jump down to verse 15. He says, I, I, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. Hmm. In other words, I pray that you do not force them to live in a Christian bubble. I don't want them to live in comfortable Christianity. I want them to live in the world. Okay? All right, he's praying this. I, I pray that not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. Jesus, is, Jesus clearly does not want to take us out of the world. The biggest question I have is, why? Why? Why don't you just take me home, God? I, I want to be with you. I don't want to deal with the problems and the headaches and the, and the financial woes or the stress at work or whatever you deal with. All right? I don't, I, never mind. <laughs> All right. My, my, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get to is this. We are here for one purpose. And that is to fulfill our mission. 
Share the message of Jesus' love with all those that are lost. The people that are around us, they need to know that Jesus really is who they're looking for. Man, that's the, that's the news. That's why we're here. That's why we need to be in the world. So what I believe Jesus had in mind was that he, wanted, he wants us to intentionally make friends with lost people. This is what marks a biblical disciple. He wants us to intentionally become friends with lost people. This is the description we have of Jesus, is it not? Remember what the Bible says? The Bible tells us that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Now, here's the thing. That doesn't just mean that Jesus was their friend. You know what it also means? It means that the lost people thought of Jesus as their friend. It was both ways. Jesus looked at them as his friend, and they looked at Jesus as their friend. How many lost people in our lives look at us as their friend? Boy, that's convicting. What about, aren't we supposed to live separate from the world, amen? You never notice how we always go southern when we do that? That's okay, we're in the north, right? We can do that. You know, those Yankees. All right, seriously, we're supposed to live in the world, are we not? That's what he's saying. He's praying for this. He says, so, so here's the thing. He's, he's, he's saying, I want you to have an intentional mindset of being friends with lost people. You go to Subway for lunch, right, or wherever you go. Man, if it's the same person every week, be nice. Be, I mean, be yourself. Let them know that you're normal, okay? Let them know you're normal. And I say, you know, you mean, you mean lost people ought to consider me as their friend? That's exactly what Jesus is praying for. All right, let me ask you a question. Is a candle needed when the electricity is working and the lights are on in a room? No. Why? That doesn't make any sense. But a candle is incredibly useful when the power's out. It's, it's nice to have a, a candle around when it's dark. You see, here's, here's what I'm convinced of. And this is the reason why I'm so bothered by this. In church, this is including our church and really our churches across the Western culture, all right, Western civilization. This is not a slam. This is just a truth, and I believe you'll see it too. In church, we have, we have it all backwards. We have it twisted around. We try to stand out when we are supposed to blend in. We try to be like a candle that outshines the rest of the light when we're in church. We try to show off our gifts. We try to be the best Christian in the room with a bunch of other Christians. We try to let our light outshine the other light when we're supposed to blend in. And we actually blend in when we're supposed to stand out. Isn't that true? We tend to go, what's that word? Oh, man, it's a phrase. When it go undercover, somebody help me incognito you put the face mask you know put the face paint on i ain't a christian you know i'm going nobody knows who i am you know that, that, that forget the chameleon christianity that's not in the bible all right you you, you gotta be, stand out when it's dark so let, let's let's just be honest about this tonight i'm gonna be real I always that's my phrase tonight be honest with each other as i think we're so good at being so superficial all the time i want to keep emphasizing that do you realize that most lost people think that christians are weird you know, they do. Most lost people think that, I thought Christians were weird before I met Jesus. How many of you guys did that? How many of you guys got saved later on if you thought Christians were just weirdos? All right. Now, can I be honest with you? Was it not justifiable? I mean, was it, be honest with you. Come on. For instance, now, all right. And I, when I say weird, there are too many weird Christians that are making Christianity look bad. All right. Weird in a bad way. Let me explain what I mean when I say weird. 
I mean, socially awkward, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Like, they don't, they just, they make everybody think that they're, they're lesser, lesser of a person. They make, these Christians, you know, they'll be the first ones that come and say, hey, oh, Pastor Joe, you know, you got to, you know, not, if you do this, don't, don't, don't be mad at me, okay? Um, Pastor Joe, you know, pray for me. I'm experiencing persecution at my church or at my, at my, at my, uh, at my workplace. And maybe that's authentic. But how, how many, this only question comes to my mind, is it because you're being weird? You know, I mean, seriously. Or is it because you're actually being the, the truth, they can see the truth in you? I mean, are you always talking about, you know, burning in hell and, and bless God, you're going to experience the wrath of God and your sin, bless God, you know? I mean, are you holding picket lines and, and you know, how, how, what kind of a Christian are you when you're at work? Are you, are you do you live the Bible or do you just flaunt the Bible? All right, so there's a, there's a difference here. Jesus wants us um, to be normal people, you know, that enjoy football, that enjoy watching March Madness, and, and to make friends with lost coworkers, lost people that go to our school. We don't always have to talk about the rapture or the wrath of God upon sin. Just live biblically around them. No, 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 no. Live biblically with them. That's probably a better way of saying it. Live biblically with them. The Bible never says that we are supposed to, to be weird, um, socially awkward. Rather, we are, t- we are told to be peculiar is the Greek word. Remember that? Hey, we always say, oh, bless God, you're supposed to be peculiar, Pastor Joe. Yeah, do you know what the word peculiar means? It means interesting. It means different. Not awkward, okay? There's a big difference there. All right, it's, 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 it's what it means. And so it has nothing to do with what you wear, Oh boy, here I just said. Has nothing to do with what you wear or you don't wear. Verse 17 is what he has in mind. What does he mean when he says we're supposed to be different? We're supposed to be interesting. How can you be, lost? How can you be friends with lost people? Well, verse 17 says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Verse 17 explains what makes us interesting. And it says that it's the truth that makes us interesting. The truth that we have in our lives. Jesus' words the truth sets us apart. That's what that word sanctify means. It means to set apart. It means you're, you're uniquely different, all right? That's what makes you so interesting to people. But in our Western Christianity, it has, it has done, what we've done with it is we've made, we made it all about what we wear. Bless God, a Christian ought to look different from the rest of the world. That's a very popular phrase. I agree with that. I agree with that. But Jesus didn't, Jesus did not look different from the rest of the world, church. You know how he dressed? Just like, just like every other guy in the whole town. Middle Eastern culture, that's how he dressed. That's, so what I'm telling you is, I think we got the wrong idea. When we talk about being different in our, in our, in our settings of work, or the marketplace, or school, I think what we have to have in mind is, the truth has to make us different. What are you going to do? Now, here's what I'm saying. I want us to be a church. This is my passion. I want us to be people. I want to be disciples. I want us to go into the workplace. I want us to go to our schools and live differently by truth. I, want you to, I think we should be making friends with lost people. I think lost people should look at us as a genuine, sincere friend that genuinely cares about them. We pray for them. We're invested in them. We're interested in what's going on in their lives. But what are you going to do if they pull out a beard? Oh, boy. What are you going to do if you're at the lunch break and they pull out a beer at lunch? Well, you know, Pastor Joe, what would you do? I'd pull out my Pepsi. That's what I would do. 
I pull out my Pepsi or Coke if you're Joe. All right. You know what? I, you know what I would do? I would sit there with him, and I'd see, it wouldn't change the fact that I still love him. It wouldn't change the fact that I still pray for them. And you know what? I would still live truth in front of them. Well, Joe, how come you ain't drinking no beer? Thank you for asking. Let me tell you. That's what I'm saying. We don't, we don't close up shop when they pull out a Bible or uh, pull out a beer. They're lost. They don't know the truth. They don't understand how things affect them. But we do. We get it. Don't run away from it, church. Live in the world. And you know what? We have to work hard at doing that, don't we? That's what the disciples had to do. They had to work hard at living in the world. All right. So, that means we need to be genuine and sincere, interested in their lives. We need to demonstrate genuine friendship to them. All right? That's what Jesus showed us how he, we should do it. So, um, I, wanna, I want to be some, I, I guess, when I look at the Bible, I want to be someone that, that thinks, that lost people think is interesting. I want to be someone that lost people think are, is different. Um, and, but yet, not self-righteous, not a jerk. I want to be... I want to be biblical. I want to be a disciple. I want to be light unto them. So, um, this is where I'm getting at. Church, we need to work hard to live in the world so that some might get saved. It'd be great if the whole world would get saved that we have influence with. If this, the only way it's going to happen is if we get out of our comfortable Christian bubbles. We have to be very intentional about going to lost people. You know what I've done after studying this whole thing out? I've made this, this one aspect about making friends with lost people the first thing I pray for every day. Lord, wherever I go, help me to make friends with lost people. You ever heard that phrase? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. They need to know that you care about them. And when they know that, they're going to listen to you. How come you don't drink beer? How come you don't do this? Or how come you don't? There's a good reason for that. I can't handle stuff like that. I mean, you go into explaining. You go explain your why you don't do certain things. Because truth, there's a, truth will make a difference in your life. All right, I'm going to have you turn one last scripture and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want everybody to turn there if you've got your Bible. Paul had this in mind when he wrote this, this letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read just four verses to you. And if we can wrap our minds around this, now keep in mind, we're talking about the mind of a true disciple, all right? They think differently because they, they live in the word, but they also live in the world. And here you see Paul's heart when he writes this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. He says this, for though I, I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all men, that I might gain the more. And under the Jews, I became a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are, not, that are under the law. To them that are without the law, those people who are not Jewish people, I became as though I was not a Jew, that I might gain them that are without the law. Verse 22. To the weak, I became, or became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made, or I am made all things to all men, that, that I might by all means save some. That's, that's the mind of a disciple. Someone who intentionally 
gets involved in lost people's lives. Let's be honest, it's a mess. But let me remind you, so were you. So were you. Thank God that somebody cared enough about me that they invested in me, they looked for me, they prayed that they would make my, they would become friends with me, and now I'm saved. And now I'm begging the church to have this mindset as well. Let's have the mind of a disciple.